San Francisco in the Roaring Twenties is a city that hasn't quite shaken her old self. Scratch the surface of civilization and out pumps the hot, chaotic blood of her Barbary Coast days. Sometimes somebody needs help bringing order back to this chaos, and that's where I come in. I work for the Federated Detective Agency. Sixty-three Audio and Rocket Eighty-Eight Productions present Adventures of the Federated Tech, created by Pete Lutz and Mark Slade, and adapted from stories by Dashiell Hammett. Tonight's story: Night Shots, dramatized by Mark Slade. The Ford that I had hired to bring me out from Nuremberg carried me into the grounds of the Exxon Estate through a high steel meshed gate, followed the circling gravel drive, and set me down within a foot of the screened porch that ran all the way around the house's first floor. The house itself was of red brick, large and square, with a green slate roof whose wide overhang gave the building an appearance of being too squat for its two stories. And it stood on a grassy hill well away from the country road upon which it turned its back to look down upon the Mokalumni River. I was about 70 miles from home and didn't like it, but sometimes the job calls for travel. Uh, there's Exxon's son-in-law now. Thanks. I turned to see a tall, loose-jointed man of 30 or so coming across the porch toward me, a carelessly dressed man with a mop of rumpled brown hair over a handsome sunburned face. There was a hint of cruelty in his smiling mouth and more than a hint of recklessness in his narrow gray eyes. Mr. Galloway? Yes, Henry Galloway. You are? From the Federated Detective Agency's San Francisco branch. Hello. Just uh, leave your bag there. We'll have it taken up to your room. He guided me into the house and, after I had assured him that I had already eaten lunch, gave me a soft chair and an excellent cigar. He sprawled on his spine in an armchair opposite me and blew smoke at the ceiling. First off, I may as well tell you that I don't expect very much in the way of results. I sent for you more for the soothing effect of your presence on the household than because I expect you to do anything. I don't believe there's anything to do. However, I am not a detective. I may be wrong. You may find out all sorts of more or less important things. If you do, fine. But I don't insist upon it. I didn't say anything, though this beginning wasn't much to my taste. He smoked in silence for a moment and then went on. My father-in-law, Talbert Exon, is a man of 57 and ordinarily a fiery old devil. Tough, hard, and active. But... Just now, he's recovering from a rather serious attack of pneumonia, which has taken most of the starch out of him. He hasn't been able to leave his bed yet, and Dr. Wrench hopes to keep him on his back for at least another week. The old boy has a room on the second floor, just above where we're sitting, as a matter of fact, in the front right-hand corner of the house. His nurse, Miss Kaywood, occupies the next room, and there's a connecting door between. My room is the other front one, just across the hall from the old fellow's, and my wife's bedroom is next to mine, across the hall from the nurse's. I'll show you around later. I just wanted to make the situation clear. That's fine. Please continue. <sighs> Last night, or rather, this morning, at about half past one, somebody shot at Talbert while he was sleeping and missed. 
The bullet went into the frame of the door that leads to the nurse's room, about six inches above the body as he lay in bed. The course the bullet took in the woodwork would indicate that it had been fired from one of the windows, either through it or from just inside. Exxon woke up, of course, but he saw nobody. The shot woke the rest of us, my wife, Miss Kaywood, the figs, and myself as well. We all rushed into his room, and we saw nothing either. There's no doubt that whoever fired it left by the window. Otherwise, some of us would have seen him. We came from every other direction. However, we found nobody on the grounds, and no traces of anybody. Who are the figs, and who else is here on the place besides you and your wife, your father-in-law, and his nurse? The figs are Adam and Emma. She's the housekeeper, and he's a sort of handyman around the place. Their room is in the extreme rear on the second floor. Besides them, there is Gong Lim, the cook, who sleeps in a little room near the kitchen, and the three farmhands. Joe Natara and Felipe Fidelia are Italians and have been here for more than two years. Jesus Mesa, a Mexican, has been here a year or longer. The farmhands sleep in a little house near the barns. Now, I think, if my opinion is of any value, that none of these people had anything to do with the shooting. Did you dig the bullet out of the doorframe? Shandy did. He's the deputy sheriff at Nonberg. He says it's a thirty-eight caliber bullet. Any guns of that caliber in the house? No. A twenty-two and my forty-four, which I keep in the car, are the only pistols on the place. And then there are two shotguns and a thirty-thirty rifle. Shandy made a thorough search and found nothing else in the way of firearms. What does Mr. Exon say? Not much of anything. <laughs> Except that if we'll put a gun in bed with him, he'll manage to take care of it himself without bothering any policemen or detectives. I don't know whether he knows who shot at him or not. He's a closed-mouth old devil. And from what I know of him, I imagine there are quite a few men who would think themselves justified in killing him. He was, I understand, far from being a lily in his youth. Or his mature years either, for that matter. Anything definite you know, or are you guessing? Galloway grinned at me, a mocking grin that I was to see often before I was through with this excellent affair. Both. <laughs> I know that his life has been rather more than sprinkled with swindled partners and betrayed friends, and that he saved himself from prison at least once by turning state's evidence and sending his associates there in his place. And I know that his wife died under rather peculiar circumstances while heavily insured and that he was for some time held on suspicion of having murdered her, but was finally released due to a lack of evidence against him. <laughs> uh, those, I understand, are fair samples of the old boy's normal behavior, so there may be any number of people gunning for him. Suppose you give me a list of all the names you know of enemies he's made, and I'll have them checked up. Well, the names I could give you would only be a few of many, and even to check up on those few might take you months. It isn't my intention to go to all that trouble and expense. As I told you, I'm not insisting upon results. My wife is very nervous. And for some peculiar reason, she seems to like the old boy. So, to soothe her, I agreed to employ a private detective when she asked me to. My idea is that you hang around for a couple of days until things quiet down and she feels safe again. Meanwhile, if you should stumble upon anything... Go to it. If you don't, well and good. 
My face must have shown something of what I was thinking. <laughs> don't. Uh, please, don't get the idea that you aren't to find my father-in-law's would-be assassin, if you wish to. You're to have a free hand. Go as far as you like. Except, I want you to be around the place as much as possible, so my wife will see you and feel that we are being adequately protected. Beyond that, I don't care what you do. You can apprehend criminals by the carload. As you may have gathered by now, I'm not exactly in love with my wife's father, and he's no fonder of me. To be frank, if hating weren't such an effort, I think I should hate the old devil. But if you want to and can catch the man who shot at him, I'd be glad to have you do it. But... All right, I don't like this job much, but since I'm up here, I'll take it on. But remember, I'm trying all the time. <laughs> yeah, sincerity and earnestness. These are very praiseworthy traits. So I hear. Now let's take a look at Mr. Exon's room. Galloway's wife and the nurse were with the invalid, but I examined the room before I asked the occupants any questions. It was a large room with three wide windows opening over the porch and two doors, one of which gave to the hall and the other to the adjoining room occupied by the nurse. Miss Kaywood, is this Japanese screen here across the doorway all the time? Yes, sir. Well, at night it is, and the connecting door remains open so I can hear Mr. Exon if he becomes restless or needs something. A man standing on the slate roof could have easily leaned across one of the windowsills and fired at the man in his bed. It would be no trick at all, either coming up or going down. The windows were unscreened. The sick man's bed stood just inside the connecting doorway between his room and the nurse's, which, when he was lying down, placed him between the doorway and the window from which the shot had been fired. Outside, within long rifle range, there was no building, tree, or eminence of any character from which the bullet that had been dug out of the doorframe could have been fired. I turned from the room to the occupants, questioning the invalid first. His statement was a marvel of petulant conciseness. The shot woke me. I didn't see anything. I, I don't know anything. I got a million enemies, most of whose names I can't remember. He jerked this out crossly, turned his face away, closed his eyes, and refused to speak again. Mrs. Galloway, Mrs. Kaywood, let's talk in the next room, all right? These two women were of as opposite types as you could find anywhere, and between them there was a certain coolness, an unmistakable hostility, which I was able to account for later in the day. Mrs. Galloway was perhaps five years older than her husband, dark, strikingly beautiful in a statuesque way, with a worried look in her dark eyes that was particularly noticeable when those eyes rested on her husband. There was no doubt that she was very much in love with him, and the anxiety that showed in her eyes at times the pain she took to please him in each slight thing during my stay at the Exxon house convinced me that she struggled always with a fear that she was about to lose him. I'm sure I can add nothing to what my husband has told you already. I was awakened by the shot. I ran to my father's room but saw nothing. Nothing that can help you. I jumped out of bed when the shot awakened me pushed the screen away from the connecting doorway, and rushed into Mr. Exon's room. I was the first one to arrive, and I saw nothing but Mr. Exon sitting up in bed, shaking his fists at the window. 
This Barbara Kaywood was a girl of 21 or two and just the sort that a man would pick to help him get well. A girl of little under the average height with the type of figure wherein slimness and roundness got an even break under the stiff white of her uniform. With soft golden hair above a face that was certainly made to be looked at. But she was businesslike and had an air of efficiency for all her prettiness. Ready to go to the kitchen? I'll take you to see Gong Lim, our cook. The cook was a sad-faced Chinese whose ever-present smile somehow made him look more gloomy than ever. And he bowed and smiled and yes-yesed me from start to finish and told me nothing. From there, we went to meet the figs. I'm Adam, sir, and the missus here is Emma. Pleased to meet you, I'm sure. Well, sir, I got my suspicions about this here shooting. Yes? Oh, and I do too, sir. I'll be happy to hear... Well, it's like this. I'm of the opinion that most crimes, and I mean crimes of violence, eh? Shootings and killings and such, Fig means, sir. Don't he know what I mean already? Are you the detective or is he? <sighs> so what I'm trying to say here is that most crimes, like what happened to Mr. Exon, they're committed by foreigners. Like that Chinese cook in the kitchen and... Yeah, 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 yeah like Gong Lim and, and take them two eye ties that work out in the fields... They don't come to this country by accident. Probably on the run from the law back in their home country. And that Jesus from down in Mexico. Everybody knows Mexicans never do an honest day's work. That's true. So you don't want to look no further than these fellas. You want to solve this here crime. Mm-hmm. The farmhands, two smiling, middle-aged, and heavily mustached Italians, and a soft-eyed Mexican youth, I found in one of the fields. I talked to them for nearly two hours, and I left with a reasonable amount of assurance, in spite of what the figs had said, that none of the three had had any part in the shooting. Oh-ho! You must be our detective. Dr. Wrench was just coming down from a visit to his patient when Galloway and I returned from the fields. He was a little wizened old fellow with mild manners and eyes and a wonderful growth of white hair on head, brows, cheeks, lips, chin, and nostrils. Well, doctor, how's our patient? I'm afraid the excitement has retarded Mr. Exon's recovery somewhat. Hmm. Oh, but this is just a minor setback. Nothing serious. His temperature did go up a little after the, um, incident, but he seems to be improving now. I followed Dr. Wrench out to his car after he left with the others for a few questions I wanted to put to him in privacy, but the questions might as well have gone unasked for all the good they did me. He could tell me nothing of any value. Uh, what's that you say? The nurse? Miss Kaywood? No, sir. Her employment was secured from an agency in San Francisco through the usual channels. I call them myself, you see, so it's highly unlikely she worked her way into this house for any hidden purpose, especially one which might have some connection with the attempt upon Mr. Exon's life. Ha! <laughs> Good day, sir. <laughs> no. No, I suppose not. I... well, I'm not sure. Hmm... You would know so if you recognized it. <laughs> Returning from my talk with the doctor, I came upon Henry Galloway and the nurse in the hall near the foot of the stairs. 
His arm was resting lightly across her shoulders, and he was smiling down at her. Just as I came through the door, she twisted away so that his arm slid off, laughed elfishly <laughs> up into his face, and went on up the stairs. I didn't know whether she had seen me approaching before she eluded the encircling arm or not, nor did I know how long the arm had been there. And both of those questions would make a difference in how their positions were to be construed. Henry Galloway was certainly not a man to allow a girl as pretty as the nurse to lack attention, and he was just as certainly attractive enough in himself to make his advances not too unflattering. Nor did Barbara Kay would impress me as being a girl who would dislike his admiration. But at that, it was more than likely that there was nothing very serious between them, nothing more than a playful sort of flirtation. No matter what the situation might be in that quarter, however, it didn't have any direct bearing upon the shooting, none that I could see anyway. But I understood now the strained relations between the nurse and Galloway's wife. Mrs. Galloway's husband was grinning quizzically at me while I was chasing these thoughts around in my head. Nobody's safe with a detective around. After dinner, Galloway drove me to Nonberg in his roadster and set me down on the doorstep of the deputy sheriff's house. You want me to wait? I can drive you back when you're done with Shandy. Thanks. I don't know how long this will take. No need for you to wait. I'll hire a car when I'm ready to come back. Shandy, the deputy sheriff, was a big, slow-spoken, slow-thinking, blonde man of 30 or so, just the type best fitted for a deputy sheriff job in a San Joaquin County town. I went out to Exxon's as soon as Galloway called me up. About 4.30 in the morning, I reckon it was, when I got there. I didn't find nothing. There weren't no marks on the porch roof, but that don't mean nothing. I tried climbing up and down it myself, and I didn't leave no marks neither. The ground around the house is too firm for footprints to be followed. I found a few, but they didn't lead nowhere. And everybody had run all over the place before I got there, so I couldn't tell who they belonged to. As far as I can learn, there ain't been no suspicious characters in the neighborhood lately. The only folks around here who've got any grudge against the old guy are the Deemses. Dexon beat him in a lawsuit a couple of years back. But all of them, the father and both the boys, were at home when the shooting was done. How long has Exxon been living here? Four or five years, I reckon. Nothing at all to work on, then? Nothing I know about. What do you know about the Exxon family? Hmm. I reckon it's Henry Galloway, you mean. I thought of that. The Galloways showed up here a couple of years after her father had bought the place, and Henry seems to spend most of his evenings up in 80's back room, teaching the boys how to play poker. I hear he's fitted to teach them a lot. I don't know myself. Edie runs a quiet game, so I let him alone. But naturally, I don't ever sit in myself. What else? Um, outside of being a card hound and drinking pretty heavy and making a lot of trips to the city, where he's supposed to have a girl on the string, I don't know nothing much about Henry. But it's no secret that him and the old feller don't hit it off together very well. And then Henry's room is just across the hall from Exxon's, and their windows open out on the porch roof just a little apart. But I don't know. A bullet is a thirty-eight caliber. No pistol like that is on the premises. 
I have to say, I don't suspect any of the help, servants nor farmhands. I don't mind admitting I'm stuck. I put in the next couple of hours talking to whomever I could find to talk to in Nonberg, and I learned nothing worth putting down on paper. Then I got a car and a driver from the garage and was driven out to Exxon's. Galloway had not yet returned from town. His wife and Barbara Kaywood were just about to sit down to a light dinner before retiring, so I joined them. How's Mr. Exxon? He's fast asleep in his room. For the past year or so, Father has been going to bed earlier and earlier. When I was little, I remember him always being a night owl. Pneumonia will do that to a body, Mrs. Galloway. What about you? I've never had it. Never wanted it. I had mumps when I was seven, though. We talked for a while, until about half past twelve, and then went to our rooms. My room was next to the nurses on the same side of the hall that divided the second story in half. I sat down and wrote my report for the day and smoked a cigar. The house was quiet by this time, so I put a gun and a flashlight in my pockets, went downstairs and out the kitchen door. The moon was just coming up, lighting the ground vaguely, except for the shadows cast by house, outbuildings, and the several clumps of shrubbery. Keeping in these shadows as much as possible, I explored the grounds, finding everything as it should be. The lack of any evidence to the contrary pointed to last night's shot having been fired by a burglar who had been entering the sick man's room through a window. If that were so, then there wasn't one chance in a thousand of anything happening tonight. Still, I felt restless and ill at ease. Galloway's roadster was not in the garage. He had not returned from Nonberg. Beneath the farmhand's window, I paused until snores in three distinct keys told me that they were all safely abed. After an hour of this snooping around, I returned to the house. The luminous dial of my watch registered 2.35 as I began listening at the other bedroom doors. All were asleep. At the last one before I turned in, Exxon's, the invalid's breath came to me with the evenness of slumber and the rasping of the pneumonia convalescent. Still feeling wide awake and restless, I pulled a chair up to my bedroom window and sat looking at the moonlight on the river, which twisted just below the house so as to be visible from this side, smoking another cigar and turning things over in my mind, to no great advantage. Outside, there was no sound. That shot came from inside the house. I threw myself across the room, out into the hall. Barbara Kaywood's door was unlocked when I reached it. I slammed it open. By the light of the moonbeams that slanted past her window, I saw her sitting upright in the center of her bed. She wasn't beautiful now. Her face was twisted with terror. The scream was just dying in her throat. All this I got in the flash of time that it took me to put a running foot across her sill. That second shot came from Exxon's room. The girl's face jerked up, so abruptly that it seemed her neck must snap. She clutched both hands to her breast and fell face down among the bedclothes. I don't know whether I went through, over, or around the screen that stood in the connecting doorway. I was circling Exxon's bed. He lay on the floor on his side, facing a window. I jumped over him, leaned out the window. In the yard that was bright now under the moon, nothing moved. There was no sound of flight. Presently, while my eyes still searched the surrounding country, the farmhands in their underwear came running barefooted from the direction of their quarters. I called down to them, stationing them at points of vantage. Hey! 
Sí, señor. Sí, sí, señor. Sí, señor. You go to the east side. You, you, search the south and you the field. How's Miss Kaywood? She's bled a lot. Mrs. Fig and I have managed to stop the bleeding. She's passed out. Gong Lim and me, we got Mr. Exon back in his bed. Would you telephone the doctor and the deputy sheriff? Yes, of course. Ah, Galloway, you're back just in time. Can't stop. What's the excitement? Same as last night. Meet anybody on the road or see anybody leaving here? No. All right, get in that bus of yours and bum up the road in the other direction. Stop anybody you meet going away from here or who looks wrong. Got a gun? One in my car. The farmhands still at their posts. I combed the grounds from east to west and from north to south. Returning to the house by way of the gravel drive, in front of the house, I found the pistol from which the shots had been fired. A cheap thirty-eight caliber revolver, slightly rusty, smelling freshly of burned powder. It had been fired three times. Besides that, I found nothing. The murderer had vanished. Shandy and Dr. Wrench arrived together just as I was finishing my fruitless search. A little later, Henry Galloway came back, empty-handed. Breakfast later that morning was a melancholy meal, except to Henry Galloway. He refrained from jesting openly about the night's excitement, but his eyes twinkled whenever they met mine, and I knew he thought it a tremendously good joke for the shooting to have taken place right under my nose. During his wife's presence at the table, however, he was almost grave, as if not to offend her. Mrs. Galloway left the table shortly, and Dr. Wrench joined us. Both patients are doing fine, resting. The bullet had barely grazed the girl's rib and breastbone, going through the flesh and muscles of her chest, in on the right side and out again on the left. Except for the shock and the loss of blood, she was not in danger, although unconscious. And Exon? Oh, Mr. Exon is sleeping soundly. So as not to disturb the soundly sleeping invalid, Shandy and I crept up into his room to examine it. The first bullet had gone into the door frame about four inches above the one that had been fired the night before. The second bullet had pierced the Japanese screen and, after passing through the girl, had lodged in the plaster of the wall. We dug out both bullets. They were 38 caliber. Both had apparently been fired from the vicinity of one of the windows, either just inside or just outside. Shandy and I grilled the Chinese cook, the farmhands, and the figs unmercifully that day, but they came through it standing up. There was nothing to fix the shooting on any of them. And all day long, that damned Henry Galloway followed me from pillar to post with a mocking glint in his eyes that said, plainer than words, I'm the logical suspect. Why don't you put me through your little third degree? But I grinned back and asked him nothing. Is that call for me? Thanks. Yeah? I followed up on Galloway. Let's have it, deputy. Do tell. Galloway left Nuremberg early enough yesterday morning to have arrived home fully half an hour before the shooting, if he drove at his usual fast pace. Is that a fact? Yep. Thought you might want to know. Thanks for the information. The day passed, too rapidly, and I found myself dreading the coming of night. Two nights in succession, Exxon's life had been attempted, and now the third night was coming. 
At dinner, Henry Galloway announced that he was going to stay home this evening. Nonberg, he said, was tame in comparison, and he grinned at me. Dr. Wrench left after the meal, saying that he would return as soon as possible, but... I have two patients on the other side of town whom I must visit. Nurse Kaywood has returned to consciousness, but she was extremely hysterical, so I gave her an opiate. She's asleep now. Mr. Exon, with the exception of a high temperature, is resting easily. I went up to Exon's room for a few minutes after the meal and tried him out with a gentle question or two, but he refused to answer them, and he was too sick for me to press him. How's Miss Kaywood? The doc says she's in no particular danger, just loss of blood and shock. If she doesn't rip her bandages off and bleed to death in one of her hysterical spells, he says, he'll have her on her feet in a couple of weeks. Father? What is it? I only wanted to check in on you. I'll leave you two to talk. I went downstairs again where I was seized by Galloway, who insisted that I tell him... Tell me about some of those mysteries you've solved. I'll bet you've been in some pretty bad scrapes, huh? And the women? Yeah, I've read the dime novels, brother. What was your case right before you joined us He was here? enjoying my discomfort to the limit. Bad. He kidded me for about an hour and had me burning up inside. But I managed to grin back with a fair pretense of indifference. When his wife joined us presently, saying that both of the invalids were sleeping, I made my escape from her tormenting husband, saying that I had some writing to do. But I didn't go to my room. Instead, I crept stealthily into the girls' room, crossed to a closet that I had noted earlier in the day, and planted myself in it. By leaving the door open the least fraction of an inch, I could see through the connecting doorway from which the screen had been removed, across Exxon's bed, and out of the window from which three bullets had already come, and the Lord only knew what else might come. Time passed, and I was stiff from standing still, but I'd expected that. Twice Mrs. Galloway came up to look at her father and the nurse. Each time, I shut my closet door entirely as soon as I heard her tiptoeing steps in the hall. I was hiding from everybody. She had just gone from her second visit when, before I had time to open my door again, I heard a faint rustling and a soft padding on the floor. Not knowing what it was or where it was, I was afraid to push the door open. In my narrow hiding place, I stood still and waited. The padding was recognizable now. Quiet footsteps coming nearer. They passed not far from my closet door. I waited. Then I heard the softest and faintest of tearing sounds. I came out of the closet, my gun in my hand. Hold it right there! Mr. Exon. Standing beside the girl's bed, leaning over her unconscious form, was old Talbert Exon himself, his face flushed with fever, his nightshirt hanging limply around his wasted legs. One of his hands still rested upon the bedclothes he had turned down from her body. The other hand held a narrow strip of adhesive tape with which her bandages had been fixed in place and which he had just torn off. Get away from her! Eh? I said get away from her. The crazy, feverish glare of his eyes told me that the threat of the gun in my hand meant nothing to him. I jumped to his side, plucked his hands aside, picked him up in my arms, and carried him, kicking, clawing, and swearing, back to his bed. I'll kill you! You son of a bitch! I'll kill you! Now you stay still. Stay right there in the bed. Hey, Doc Wrench, Galloway. Come up on the double. Galloway, Shandy, and I sat over coffee and cigarettes in the kitchen while the rest of the household helped Dr. Wrench battle for Exxon's life. The old geezer had gone through enough excitement in the last three days to kill a healthy man, let alone a pneumonia convalescent. But why should the old devil want to kill her? 
Search me, but it's a cinch he did. The gun was found just about where he could have thrown it when he heard me coming. I was in the girl's room when she was shot, and I got to Exxon's window without wasting much time, and I saw nothing. You yourself, driving home from Nonberg and arriving here right after the shooting, didn't see anybody leave by the road, and I'll take an oath that nobody could have left in any other direction without either one of the farmhands or me seeing them. That's true enough, for sure. And then tonight, I told Exxon that the girl would recover if she didn't tear off her bandages, which, while true enough, gave him the idea that she had been trying to tear them off. And from that, he built up a plan of tearing them off himself, knowing that she had been given an opiate, perhaps, and thinking that everyone would believe that she had torn them off herself. And he was putting that plan into execution, had torn off one piece of tape, when I stopped him. He shot her intentionally, and that's flat. Maybe I couldn't prove it in court without knowing why, but I know he did. But the doc says he'll hardly live to be tried. He killed himself trying to kill the girl. Maybe you're right. Why didn't you suspect me? <laughs> I did, but not enough. Why not? You may be making a mistake. You know my room is right across the hall from his, and I could have left my window, crept across the porch, fired at him, and then run back into my room on that first night. Yes, and? And on the second night, when you were here, you ought to know that I left Nonberg in plenty of time to have come out here, parked my car down the road a bit, fired those two shots crept around in the shadow of the house, run back to my car, and then come innocently driving up to the garage. Don't think I didn't consider that possibility. You should also know that my reputation isn't any too good, that I'm supposed to be a bad egg. And you do know that I don't like the old boy. And for a motive, there is the fact that my wife is Exxon's only heir. I hope you don't think that I have any moral scruples against a well-placed murder now and then. <laughs> I don't. Well, then... If Exxon had been killed that first night and I'd come up here, you'd be doing your joking behind bars long before this. And if he'd been killed the second night, even, I might have grabbed you. But I don't figure you as a man who'd bungle so easy a job. Not twice, anyway. You wouldn't have missed and then run away, leaving him alive. <laughs> it is comforting to have one's few virtues appreciated. Before Talbert Exxon died, he sent for me. He wanted to die, he said, with his curiosity appeased, and so we traded information. I told him how I had come to suspect him, and he told me why he had tried to kill Barbara Kaywood. Fourteen years ago, I killed my wife. Not for the insurance, as I had been suspected of doing, but in a fit of jealousy. However... I so thoroughly covered up the proofs of my guilt that I was never brought to trial. But the murder always weighed upon me, becoming almost an obsession. I knew that I would never give myself away consciously. I was too shrewd for that. <laughs> and I know that proof of my guilt can never be found. But there has always been the chance that sometime, in delirium, in my sleep, or when drunk, I might tell enough to bring me to the gallows. I gave up drinking. That was easy. There was no way of guarding against the other things. And then one of them finally happened. I contracted pneumonia. 
and for a week I was out of my head, and I talked. I questioned the nurse afterwards. She gave me only vague answers, would not tell me what I'd talked about, what I'd said. And then, in unguarded moments, I saw her looking at me with loathing, with intense repulsion. Hmm. I knew then that I had babbled of my wife's murder, and I set about laying plans for removing the nurse before she repeated what she heard. For as long as she remained in my house, I counted myself safe. She would not tell strangers, and it might be that, for a while, she would not tell anyone. Professional ethics would keep her quiet, perhaps, but I could not let her leave my house with her knowledge of my secret. Daily and in secret, he had tested his strength until he knew himself strong enough to walk about the room a little and to hold a revolver steady. His bed was fortunately placed for this purpose, directly in line with one of the windows, the connecting door, and the girl's bed. In an old bond box in his closet, and nobody but he had ever seen the things in that box, was a revolver. A revolver that could not possibly be traced to him. On the first night he had taken this gun out, stepped back from his bed a little, and fired a bullet into the doorframe. Then he had jumped back into bed, concealing the gun under the blankets, where none thought to look for it until he could return it to the box. That was all the preparation he had needed. He had established an attempted murder directed against himself, and he had shown that a bullet fired at him could easily go near, and therefore through, the connecting doorway. And what happened on the second night? Well, sir, that night, Exxon had waited until the house seemed quiet. Then he had peeped at the girl, whom he could see in the reflected light from the moon, through one of the cracks in the Japanese screen. He had found, though, that when he stepped far enough back from the screen for it to escape powder marks, he could not see the girl, not when she was lying down. So he had fired first into the doorframe, near the previous night's bullet, to awaken her. She had sat up in bed immediately, screaming, and he had shot her. He heard me approaching and only had time to throw the revolver out the window. He died that afternoon, and I returned to San Francisco. So you did. That's quite an unusual story. But that does not seem to be the end of it. It doesn't, sir? Not quite. I thought you might be interested in hearing part of a letter that accompanied Mr. Galway's check. Well, yes, sir, I would very much. <clears throat> I don't want to let you miss the cream of the whole affair. The lovely Miss Kaywood when she recovered, denied that Exxon had talked of murder or any other crime during his delirium. Along with hands grabbing at her, passes made, and even kissing Miss Kaywood, was that the entire conversation during that week of delirium had consisted of an uninterrupted stream of obscenities and blasphemies which seemed to have shocked the girl through and through.
You have been listening to Night Shots, Episode 8 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as the Tech and Farmhands 2 and 3. Jeff Moon as Galloway. Rachel Pulliam as Mrs. Galloway. John Bell as the Driver, Shandy, Mr. Fig, and Farmhand 1. Angela Young as Miss Kaywood. Frank Guglielmelli as Mr. Exon. Paul Arbisi as Dr. Wrench. Jerry Elif as Mrs. Fig, and Joe Stofko as the Old Man. Music was by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. Night Shots was written by Dashiell Hammett and was published in the November 1st, 1924 issue of Black Mask Magazine. Adaptation by Mark Slade. Script editing by Pete Lutz. Mixing and mastering were performed by Daniel French of Fishbonius Sound Design. This program was produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. This is Darren Rockold speaking. This ends Season 1 of Adventures of the Federated Tech. On behalf of our producers, we thank you for listening and hope you'll join us again for Season 2, coming soon. Sixty-three audio. Rocket 88 Production.